0: Hey, deserving listeners, it's just me today. I thought I would respond to some patron emails. But first, let me introduce the podcast. This is called the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. This email, this first email I want to read is from famous patron Linden. He wrote over a year ago, so <laughs> I'm finally getting to his email here. He writes, Hi Kirk, a topic that I find interesting is that of family favorites. In my country, that means the daughter is the apple of her father's eye, or the golden child's son whose mother dotes over him. In talking with others, this is apparently very common, so I'm curious, since you deal with families and relationships a lot, what do we do about child favoritism, What kinds of systems produce future parents who will have favorites? Is there any biological or evolutionary psychology explanations? Does projective identification have a role in favoritism? What are the effects of favoritism on favorites? What are the effects on other children? What is the effect on the system overall as a whole? Well, uh, yeah, famous patron Linden, you always have the most interesting... Emails. I have to I have to say there. I'm not even reading the whole email here. I'm just reading part of it. Um, so the first thing that I'll say is this topic is difficult to empirically measure. You know, how, how do we define the favorite? How do we verify the person is the favorite? To what degree are they the favorite? Um, how how much does being favorite, even if we could verify and and sort of rate how favorite someone is? How do we know how much that had on that pers- on, the, on the favorite or the non-favorite children? How do we know the weight of that factor on their self-esteem as opposed to other factors that play into one's personality? So it's, it's really hard to say, and anyone who claims they know the answer to these questions basically doesn't understand empirical science and is over in love with their own ideas. So I should just say that up front. And family therapists have been looking at this for decades and and speculating, and and I can speculate too. And so so most of this is, is, um, you know, just based on my own clinical experience, looking at the research that's available, and also uh, just my own personal experience. So, you know, it's rational to conclude that parents – who favoritize certain children over others and make it very overt. Um, so, so I think the first um, distinction needs to be overt favoritism versus hidden favoritism or secret favoritism. Because I think what you're talking about, Lyndon, is overt favoritism, where everyone kind of knows. Oh, mom, mom likes you know Jenny much more than any other kid so it's 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 overt it's known whereas most parents even even the good ones will you know they'll admit if you really hold them to it that you know one of their kids or is their favorite or one of their kids is is definitely not their favorite or something you know good parents my 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 mom always would say cuz i i grew up with with three siblings that none of us were a favorite, and and I I believe her, you know. There, I don't I don't get that sense, but I'm I'm sure that if she were being completely honest about it, that you know there would be someone that she kind of enjoyed talking to a little bit more than others. I don't know. Um, I'm guessing that's my sister. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I just have one sister, so I, I'm guessing my mom. I know for it anyway. Not <laughs> going. I. And yet I don't feel hurt by that. It's just like, you know, I'm guessing that my mom and my sister just have a lot more in common or something, and, and they have very similar personalities. I don't know. <laughs> my, my point is, is that you ask any parent about whether or not they, they have a favorite Yet even the good parents will say, well, you know, this one kid I sort of identify with a little bit more because he, he seems really very much like me. And I don't know, we have a lot in common. And you know, the other kids, I love my other kids dearly, and would do anything for them and really enjoy their company too. But you know, there's just one kid that I don't know, we just we just sort of click in a way that I don't necessarily click with the other kids. So so there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, you know, it just happens, you know. Like as a as a kid yourself, you might have a favorite sibling or even a favorite parent for that matter, even though you love all your siblings and both your parents or all your parents. So there's nothing wrong with with having a little bit of a separate sort of closeness with an with an individual, and parents are no exception to that. Now, most parents would never admit to that because they don't want to hurt anyone's feelings, and that's probably a good idea. But really what we're talking about here is overt favoritism, harmful favoritism, shall we say. And it's rational to conclude that parents who engage in harmful, overt favoritism, that they probably, in their childhoods, it developed insecure attachment styles. You know they were probably mistreated themselves when they were kids. The you know the parents um, they uh, might also be highly stressed in their adult lives, which makes it harder for them to to um, you know react in a loving way towards all the kids. You know you you put a family through war stress or economic stress or racism stress. And a lot of things are going to suffer, including the parent's ability to think straight. And one of the things that might happen is that a subtle favoritism will will sort of work its way into a system so that uh, it's really known and harmful. Anyway, you ask about biological factors, Lyndon, and the only biological factor I would be comfortable speculating about would be that some kids are born difficult, is what we might say. You know, some some kids are born with GI problems or you know, more sensitive or what we call gifted in which their their nervous system is just more uh, excitable and are going to be a little bit tougher as a child to, you know, as an infant for parents. You know, it, when you have a, you know, parents out there who have multiple children, you know what this, this is like in all likelihood that, you know, your firstborn kid cried all the time and just wouldn't go to sleep and just very upset, you know, and very bothersome. And then your second kid, you know, mu- you know, by month three or four slept through the night, didn't really cry. It wasn't. And when they did, it was, you know, infrequent. So some kids, for whatever reason, we could speculate as to why just, just are tougher and are having a tougher time, even though the parenting and the environmental conditions are identical. And, and, Therefore, it seems like that could result in favorites, right? Because right from the start, your relationship with the child is strained by a child who is difficult um, and that kind of thing. Or it could work the opposite way. Like you could have a child who had a lot of medical problems. And when you were a a young parent raising this child who you worried would, would might die at some point or you you know you're just very concerned about this child's well-being you you might have an affinity affinity towards that child because that that child needed more love needed more attention and this sort of thing whereas your two other kids didn't have those problems and you didn't really need to pay attention to them as much and therefore didn't really get the kind of bond that you have with the child who was in and out of the hospital so you know i imagine so that's biology i suppose Evolutionary psychology, though I I can't really imagine a good speculation that we would never be able to test. Of course, because you know what I think about evolutionary psychology hypotheses, but I I would have a hard time thinking of a you know you know a I I would imagine a common evolutionary psychology hypothesis. I've never heard this, so you know maybe it's never been said, but I imagine it's like well you know um, male parents have an identification with or a protectiveness of daughters or, or mothers have a sort of romantic thread with their sons or, or something, you know, of course, you know, it all just gets a little silly and in my view and and in my experience, favoritism doesn't follow any kind of pattern like that. You know, often when I talk about families with people, They'll be like, oh, my God, I have experienced that men, you know, fathers really go easy on their daughters. And, you know, I just find that to be really common. And then I'm like, was that common in your family? And they're like, yeah, I mean, my dad was really easy on my sister. And I'm like, well, so you have an n of one. You have a sample size of one. <laughs> uh, try not to generalize that to seven and a half billion people, because in my experience, that uh, certainly happens some of the time. But you know, it's, it's it's equally as often that I see fathers will go easy on their sons. So you know, anyway, um, you asked about projective identification, and yeah, projective identification absolutely plays a role in favoritism your wise famous patron Linden to even ask that question you know parents if you, know, if you want to learn about projective identification you know listen to my other podcast on it but in, in general we internalize relationships early on in our life and then basically recreate them later on in life as a defense against the internal struggle having internalized a relationship so if we internalize, a relationship, say, um, say, say our father was, you know, he drank alcohol, and he was bothersome. And we internalize that relationship that we had. So we internalize us, and we internalize our dad, and we internalize difficulty and in alcohol. And then when our own son starts to drink, we, uh, because we have this unresolved internalized relationship with our father, we externalize it and then start to have transference of our feelings that we have towards our father onto our son who is now drinking because he is, our son is now looking like our father. And because we have a defensive mechanism to externalize these internal struggles, then we start to work out our problems with our son, which uh, originated from our father. And not only do we project an unwanted aspect of ourself regarding uh, drinking and being dismissive or hurtful, but we also socialize the other person to do that subtly so the the parent will socialize the kid to act more and more like their father so that they can uh, continue to use projective ident- identification and that can work also with favorites. you can internalize a sort of narcissism or some kind of favoritism, and and then therefore repeat that pattern with with your own children, um, yeah. Uh, regarding theory, different theories. You're asking, you know, what do the different theorists have to say about favoritism? I'm guessing all the theories would have some interpretation on favoritism. For instance, psychodynamic people, as I've been talking about, would talk about defenses like projective identification or attachment uh, patterns. Uh, cognitive therapists might say that. Early on, certain schemas were developed regarding the um, the assumptions and the automatic thoughts regarding different children, and then the cognitive therapist would try to evaluate that and then attempt to change them so that the favorite child isn't looked at in that way. You know, like a cognitive therapist might look at a a parent, and 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 of course, the parent would have actually have to ask for help with this, and then the cognitive therapist say, like, "Well." When you think of your non-favorite children, what's the what's the first thoughts to come to your head? And when you think of your favorite kid, what's the first thought that comes to your head? And it's likely to be like positive and negative thoughts. And then you try to um, break those down. Narrative therapists, similar kind of thing, but less forceful. Systems people would try to evaluate the routines and the triangles and attempt to change them so they're uh, so that the favoritism maybe was spread out a little bit more. I don't know. And, Lyndon, you ask how common is favoritism. In my experience, I would say that it's pretty common. Um, you know, when, when people start t- talking about favoritism, the underlying problem is that the parents are not nurturing enough to their children. So, so basically what I've seen in families is that whenever the parents are stressed out or have their own psychological issues – their parenting ability suffers just all the time. And as a result, all the children tend to feel slightly neglected or hurt or damaged or even abused in some ways. And then what ends up happening is the children start looking at each other as competitors for their parents' love and attention. So in, in an optimal situation, the parents are giving the kids enough love and attention so that the kids don't really compete for for the parental love because the kids don't need to because they're getting enough as it is. But whenever there's a deficit in the love and attention that parents are giving their kids, the kids will start targeting each other, start fighting with each other. They'll start thinking that the other kids are favorited when they are not. There's there Often there tends to be overt arguments about, how much money the parents are spending on the kid, because money is a stand-in for love and attention. It's much easier to complain that your parents haven't bought you a new pair of shoes than to say that your parents don't love you, especially for a teenager, right? So uh, so sometimes the perception of favoritism, actually, when you look at it, no one is favored. It's just that everyone is not favored, <laughs> in a sense. Every Every kid is neglected and therefore feeling the pain of that and looking uh, to the other siblings and, and, and being jealous of the little bit of love and attention that is given to those siblings, but the other siblings are also feeling neglected and hurt. So that's what I have to say about that. What other questions—did I answer all your questions? What do we know about child favoritism? Um, I, I, mean, I don't know. I could go on more about that. Uh, what kind of systems? Talked about that. Biolog- biology, predictive identification. Uh, what are the effects of favoritism on favorites? Uh, that's a good question. I, I imagine that it's highly variable. I imagine for some kids, they might not even know they're the favorite, but if they did know that they were the favorite, I imagine that they could feel guilty or ashamed or somehow responsible for the pain that the other kids are feeling, a little bit of parentification in some ways. They could develop uh, some issues regarding uh, narcissism, like I'm better than other people. I imagine that that's absolutely possible. Um, and you ask what is the effect on the system overall as a whole when there's a favorite. Well, if it's a harmful favoritism, the whole system's going to not benefit from that, right? Because you have a the favorite child feels special but also feels ashamed or guilty and might be bullied by the other siblings, right? So that's no good. And then the parent will probably be ashamed of what they're doing, and um, their relationships with their other kids are strained. And so in general, you know, any kind of harmful relationship is going to have a harmful effect on the overall family system. All right, good question, famous patron Lyndon. Let's go on to another email here. All right, this email is from patron Nathan. Patron Nathan wrote some time ago – I'm finally getting – I finally have time to get to all these emails that I have been – that have been piling up. And so some of these emails have come from a long time ago. But anyway, Patron Nathan wrote, Hey, Kirk, I'd love to hear a podcast about the subject of humor and its purposes. Patron Nathan spells humor in a weird way, which indicates he's either – he's just not from the United States because doesn't like Canada and the UK and Australia all spell humor with a U. Anyway, so um, that's what he says. (laughs) I'd love to hear a podcast about the subject of humor and its purposes. To me, humor can be used as a defense mechanism as it helps distancing oneself from a difficult situation. Yeah, just chiming in here on your email. Yeah, absolutely. Humor is can be used as a defense mechanism. People often learn this early in life. Either their family teaches them this or they just learned it by trial and error. Many comics, stand-up comics, have a similar backstory in which their childhood was difficult and they learned that by uh, making jokes it it helped their family. You know, there's... Uh, interviews with comics, and they'll be like, yeah, you know, my mom was, was actually really sick for a decade, and, and whenever I would make a joke or um, dance around, she would laugh, and, and the whole family, I could just feel that things would get better. Um, or a- another path is when you are being targeted by bullying or abuse or some kind of other familial or societal problem Some kind of attack on you. Uh, One defense is to make jokes. You know, if you're the funny guy, people tend to avoid bullying you, or, um, or at the very least, at least you can laugh about it while you're being bullied. That kind of thing. Um, And honestly, and it shows up in therapy too, with clients and with students. Honestly, Uh, I. know, obviously work with clients, but I also work with, I I work with more students than clients these days and, uh, students and supervisees of mine, some of them will use humor to avoid certain things. And so it, it's, um, it's interesting and it's really hard to resist when, when someone, when I see someone, a client or a student or a supervisee using humor to avoid, it's it's really hard for me personally to resist that because I like to laugh. I like to joke around. And I bet you a lot of times it just goes over my head that I will be, say, working with a student on something and they are getting close to something that's kind of rough for them and they'll avoid in a, say, a dysfunctional way by making a joke or just by giving off a very jokey persona. There are certain people who... You might know people like this. You just give off a very jokey persona. I mean, Umberto is one of those people, and if he were here, he might totally admit that he uses humor in a dysfunctional way sometimes. And I mean, most of the time, I think his humor is um, not dysfunctional at all, but and actually helps a lot of things. But anyway, uh, everyone knows someone who might be a candidate for this, I I would imagine, in which everything basically—no, that's not the right way to put it. The right way to put it is that when you are around them, you just expect to laugh a lot. And that's that can be a wonderful thing, and it's not necessarily dysfunctional, but for some people, they're, they're avoiding and they're running from issues to such an extent that they've developed an extremely good persona that basically socializes everyone around them to laugh at everything and to never take it, anything seriously and to to avoid what they're trying to avoid. And then everyone around them basically colludes with a defense mechanism. Um, you know, I know students who are like this, who, who just eternally give off a very comedic persona and in doing so are likely avoiding facing things head on and are, and are terrified on the inside. And so it's up to us as therapists and as professors and supervisors to gently work on that with some people, which I have. Um, I've even written a, a song about this to some extent, um, where it's like in the chorus, it's, you know, it's so easy to laugh it off. Anyway, uh, you go on with your email, patronathan. Humor can also be a great way to connect with people for reasons I don't really understand. Okay, chiming in here. Yeah, no one understands it. We, we don't understand really any of our behavior, so let alone humor. But, if I were to speculate, I would say that humor puts people at ease. You know, when we're laughing or chuckling or experiencing humor or something, it releases tension likely because if we're laughing, then it's a signal to our bodies that we're not really in danger. You know, if we were really in danger, and someone was trying to kill us, we wouldn't have the capacity to laugh or make a joke in that situation. So um, I'm guessing that's why humor, but you know, uh, and do do other animals have sense have a sense of humor i, I think they do and uh, what's what's that all about <laughs> i don't know you know and the the whole fact that humor is what tragedy versus um you know it has to be like handleable tragedies that are unexpected it's just weird that we consider those things funny and then that most of our humor just kind of branches off and evolves from that basic notion of of essentially it's like when a clown trips and falls down and drops, you know, they're holding a, a, a basket of – all you have to do is look at young kids to know, like, where all of our humor basically stands on. And a clown enters the stage, is, is carrying a, a box of apples, and then trips and falls, and all the apples go flying. And as long as the clown isn't actually hurt and the clown is is just – um, uh, you know, is going to recover and they're not, you know, they didn't like break their leg or something. Everyone's going to be laughing their butts off. You know, the kids are just, just rolling. Well, all of our humor basically comes from that. When stand-up comics say jokes, they're basically verbally doing what that clown is doing to three-year-olds. It's just a more abstract, more complicated, but essentially the same components are there. And it's interesting when I look at humor through that lens. It's just like everything is basically, uh, what is it? Tragedy plus time equals humor, or something. It's it's all about uh, you know people. The funniest jokes have to do with things that are actually like horrible in life, or things that are like genuinely bad, things that we genuinely don't like, and the and or things that are genuinely unexpected. You know. Um, Anyway. Uh, and you ask me, patron Nathan, I'm wondering if you use humor in therapy. I'm assuming it can be a great therapeutic tool, but it might also be very tricky considering not everyone has the same sensibility to different kinds of humor. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I use humor all the time, uh, with, uh, not so much with clients, honestly, because by the time I start getting into the nitty gritty with clients, say, you know, after session two or three, the, The subject matter is so serious that there really isn't any need for humor or uh, joking around would be uh, really off tone, shall we say. Um, You know, a lot of people use therapy to talk about extremely depressing, sad, intense, conflictual, negative things. And to make jokes about things like that would be horribly off tone. So... And I don't have any impulse to do it when I'm there. So so if you saw me in therapy, I'm guessing you wouldn't, you'd be like, oh, wow, you know, I've never seen Kirk like that. Because on the podcast, I joke around a lot and talk a lot, for one. And when I'm in therapy, I'm, I'm not talking hardly at all, um, at least when things are going well. I'm barely talking, and I'm listening, and I'm providing compassion and empathy, and I'm reflecting, and I'm in their world, and... And and a lot of people come to me to talk about some very sad things that have that don't have any kind of humor to it at all. So anyway, but yeah, I mean, I use humor all the time. I use humor a lot more with as a professor and as a supervisor. And I imagine most of the time it goes well. Otherwise, I wouldn't do it. But there, I've made mistakes. There, there have been times I can't remember any off the top of my head, but. I know there have been times when I've made a joke and just been like, "Oh, gee, that was bad." (laughs) Like I, I I just made a joke about something I shouldn't have made a joke about, or um, another uh, kind of pitfall that I've found that I've you know fell into is with group supervision. Um, I do I do a lot of you know group supervision where there's say three to six supervisees in my group, and since I like to use humor a lot and people and there's certain people who love to use humor a lot too uh, the the consultation groups or the supervision groups over time can become extremely jokey where it's just like you know every where it's hard for anyone actually to get serious sometimes and supervision um, absolutely sometimes needs to be needs to be very serious I mean there are there are some very serious topics that come up in supervision. Not only obviously with clients, but with supervisees themselves, they'll talk about you know their mom died yesterday, um, you know those those kinds of topics get talked about in supervision because it's it's a part of the clinician's life and their countertransference and um, and we're here for them and and so there are extremely grave conversations that happen and I have found that if I am too jokey that. It's hard for the group to actually uh, galvanize around the seriousness of the topic. And so I've actually course corrected with some groups where I um, will sense an opportunity for humor and I'll refrain. Or when someone cracks a joke, when I'm thinking, "Eh, I don't really need, I don't think we really need to be that jokey, I won't laugh. I'll just be like, okay, well, let's, you know, let's try to. Um, address this issue in a more serious manner without being mean to the person who cracks the joke. I've absolutely had to do that in in group supervision. Um, but in general, I would say I hope that my use of humor is helpful. All right, let's take a break and when we get back. Let's let's get to some some more of these emails. This is fun, right? It's fun to like finally get some of these emails off of my off of my list. All right, we're back from the break. If you haven't already, do this go to patreon.com and become a patron of the podcast. It's the way that you can show us that you appreciate this podcast. It's really the only reason why we keep doing this podcast is because people keep signing up on Patreon. You know, some people drop off and some people drop on. And so if you want to really support the podcast, go to patreon.com and become a patron now. Do it. Become one of us. All right. This email is from patron Eric. Eric writes... Hi, Kirk. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on post-traumatic growth. It's something I encountered in a college psych class. It was presented as kind of an alternative perspective rather than something currently well-supported by research. It intrigued me because I have had PTSD. At that time in my life, I had just come out of my worst, most harrowing period of it and was working to cultivate a more positive, wider perspective on trauma. Is there any truth to post-traumatic growth? is is it still too new age or underground to be authentically discussed unquote uh, okay um, yeah, I love the topic of post-traumatic growth actually I think it's one of the better things to come out of psychology in recent decades it's it's basic so if, for those that don't know it's basically defined as after a terrible trauma like being raped or a near-death experience, or a difficult car accident, or even being um, physically abused throughout your childhood—that, or coming back from a war—that you know we all know the negative effects of that. PTSD being one possible negative effect, but uh, what about the what happens in terms of uh, some positive change from from trauma? Uh, is are what about is there any sort of positive change that people who experience trauma experience which at first might seem kind of funny it's like how can something really horrible 100% horrible uh, produce something that is positive in that in the victim's life well that's what post traumatic growth uh the the topic uh, the people who are interested in that the researchers they have found um you know it's it's, um, I'm not sure how many people talk about it. I certainly do. Um, and in my experience, trauma experts and PTSD experts and grief experts all at least know about post-traumatic growth, if not focus on it. Um, you, you say that the person presenting it made it seem like it was new age and not supported by research, which is a, you know, maybe you're getting the wrong impression. But if that was truly the impression they're giving off, then they are, uh, they are ridiculous human beings, because post-traumatic growth has been a well accepted phenomenon among human beings empirically found by research uh, for decades. So I don't know why someone would consider it to be below research standards or or new age, which I imagine a lot of people would associate with basically pseudoscience or, you know, that kind of stuff. Drives me nuts when teachers don't know what they're talking about. There's nothing wrong with saying, ah, there's this thing called post-traumatic growth. I don't know that much about it, but, you know, blah, 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 blah. Um, plus, it doesn't take that long to... I mean, uh, if you're an academic and you're a, you're an instructor, you very likely have access to psychological journals and a database. So all you got to do is type in post-traumatic growth. That's what I did just two minutes ago. I was like post-traumatic growth into my psychological journal database. And I got hundreds of research articles and, you know, the way that all these people are talking about it, it's like, you know, they cite all these other studies blah, blah, Anyway. And so I'll, I'll talk about that in a second, but anyway, um, you know, after we recover from a difficulty, we often appreciate our lives more, right? We appreciate our relationships with others more. Um, we find meaning from uh, from traumatic experiences. Um, people do this all the time, and it's really a beautiful thing. Um, having said that, research shows that some people actually never experience any post traumatic growth. Uh, so, you know, it's it's um, it depends on the human and the, on the circumstances. Um, There's a lot of research on it, like I said. There are various different uh, things I could say, but if I was to say a few things, it would be that um, research shows that individuals reporting that they've been through a trauma, uh, many of them experience at least one positive change after a traumatic event. So it could be immediately or, or later. You know, things that you'll hear people say are um, And research will show that, that their relationships actually get better, their appreciation of relationships get better. Like, if you are mugged, and you develop some PTSD, as a result of being mugged by someone on the street, one of the things that a lot of people will often report after the dust settles is that they have a much bigger appreciation for life and a much bigger appreciation for their spouse and their children, because as they were, I mean, what, you know, this is what they'll they'll tell me is as they were worried that they might die, the, they thought, man, I'm going to miss my wife and my kids, or I'm going to miss my husband and my kids and my parents and my, my dog and my cats. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna miss all that, and I wish I had more time with them. I wish I uh, was nicer around them. I wish I had more quality time with them. And then, after the dust settles from the trauma effects, that that retains. You know, that that positive thing. And so they they put more energy into those relationships, and they feel better. And it's a post traumatic growth. Another study found that 58% to 88, or a meta study, 58% to 83%, so say about you know two-thirds of trauma, survivor, trauma survivors report a positive change in at least one domain. And the domains are appreciation for life, social relationships, personal strength, spirituality, and new possibilities. So that's another positive change that people experience in, in terms of spirituality, meaning that they have a new appreciation for God or their connection to the universe or something. Um, things that I've heard from people, you'll hear, you've, you've all heard people say stuff like this. They'll say things like, I'm stronger now because of it. Or I, I have a new calling in life because I, I now realize I want to help victims who have experienced that before. Or, I, you know, before the traumatic event, I didn't really appreciate life. Now I really appreciate my life. Or some people will say, it it gave me an excuse to become an artist, and I now will dedicate my life creating art to this traumatic event. Or I've become a part of a new community of other people who have been through traumas like this. Uh, People will say, my life has purpose now. So you'll hear stuff like that. You've all heard stuff like that, right? Well, that's a positive change from trauma, right? It's, It's meaning, it's purpose, it's uh, you know, when we go through difficulties like this, we, we have a natural tendency to try to, f- to try to find meaning, to try to make sense of it all. Why did this happen to me? What does this mean for the rest of my life? For most of us, uh, we, w- through exploration, we'll find something. And as a therapist, I've I've helped people find those things. I never tell them what they're supposed to believe, but i but I'll you know when the dust has settled, I might say like, well, so what does all this mean? You know, when some sometimes I'll ask people, when you know, fast forward a number of decades and you're on your deathbed and you're looking back at this time, uh, this difficult time that you've been through. What do you think you're going to say about this time? And some people will say, huh, well, let me think. I'm on my deathbed. I'm I'm 85. I'm 95 years old and I'm I'm laying there and I'm looking back at this time. Well, I, I guess I I might think that I was glad that I went through that because it made me mature faster or I it made me appreciate what life is all about, which is about relationships and and Art, art and giving back to a community. Whereas before the traumatic event, I didn't really focus on that stuff. I was sort of lost in materialism and that kind of you know. So you'll hear people say stuff like that. And therapy is a way to help to get that. So post-traumatic growth, patron Eric, is a well-known researched phenomenon within the field of trauma and grief. And there are plenty of studies that have looked at it. And it's not hard to study because it's not some sort of evolutionary psychology claim. It's just asking people, um, you know, have you, have you experienced a positive change as a result of this terrible trauma? And if they say yes, then they're one of the people that has. And if they say no, then they're one of the people who hasn't. So uh, it's a well-researched phenomenon. All right, let's read another email, shall we? Okay, this next email is from an anonymous patron. She writes, "Hi Kirk, I was wondering if you could touch on revictimization. A fellow sexual assault survivor and I were discussing how often we hear from other survivors that sexual abuse or assault has not been the, has not been a one-time thing in their lives. It appears that many victims of sexual assault have been assaulted by multiple per- perpetrators multiple times." I've read a bit on this, and it seems to be an actual thing, but I cannot quite understand why. The most interesting theory I've read is that victims try to recreate their abuse, but with a different ending. End of email. Yeah, Uh, as I've said before, the short answer is we have no idea, because our current technologies, uh, and I'm guessing for the rest of my life, the the technologies will not be able to really answer this question as to why human beings are the way that they are. Uh, But I think there's some rational speculations based on data uh, that I will provide right now. So these are the ones I can think of off the top of my head that I have. um, They're not off the top of my head. I mean, they're ones that I've found to be, you know, good speculations with clients I've worked with. So number one, as you mentioned, yeah, some survivors will try to recreate the abuse uh, with a new abuser, in a un, in an unconscious attempt to produce a better ending, which often obviously doesn't work and just adds to the trauma. So for sure, that that seems to be a, a good speculation and falls in line with psychodynamic object relations, projective identification lines. Number two, another speculation I would say is that sadistic psychopaths often can detect people who have been abused before. Sadistic psychopaths are, you know, they don't have any, they don't have any empathy and they they get pleasure from harming other people. And, and maybe even more specifically, they get pleasure when other people are terrified. And so they will sometimes figure out through trial and error that there's a certain kind of person that will tend to be um, easy to abuse and will tend to not Talk about it. So, um, you know, if you've been through a lot of sexual assault in your life, you're you're much and you haven't uh, recovered because it can take a lot of time. And it, and therapy is scary, and a lot of therapists don't know what they're doing to even help. And so, so if you if you've been through a lot of sexual trauma and and assaults, the 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 reality is that for a lot of people, they develop. PTSD and or dissociation or self-shame or um, a very quick response to freeze. You know, we have the fight, flight, freeze, or appease you. So, you know, we used to call it fight or flight, but we've added freeze and appease because there's fighting when you're faced with danger, which we all can understand. You fight back. There's, there's fleeing, like running away, which makes sense, but a, just as often people will freeze and whenever you know all you got to do is listen to the accounts with Harvey Weinstein and other kinds of people to realize that under a lot of circumstances people just freeze it it is a very common response to just be like uh, what is happening right now just you know and you'll see and it, you'll see people do this even when it's not sexual assault like um <laughs> i i have sort of a a um, funny youtube Rabbit hole that I go down sometimes, where I watch those videos where it's like some security camera catches a car that careens into a building and no one gets hurt. But um, I just like to see the reactions from people. Sometimes it's like you know they're just buying a hot dog at Seven Eleven and and then all of a sudden a car is crashing through the front door. I just as long as long as no one's get hurt, no one gets hurt because I I hate watching those kind of videos. Those are traumatizing to me literally but if no one gets gets hurt then it's just so interesting to watch people's face you know they from one one second they're just living their normal life and then all of a sudden there's a car that's careening through the 711 and they're jumping out of the way and they're just in and what you'll see some people will do is they just stand there they they're just like okay there's a car that is now in 711 and I'm just going to stand here some people will just continue the transaction they'll just be like Okay, uh here's my credit card and you're just like um I'm pretty sure the cashier is you know the 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 hot dog transition is off the table <laughs> and now the the deal that, of this car is now you know taking priority. But you'll see people do that. They'll or or a car will Crash and almost hit someone as they're walking down the street, and the person will just continue walking down the street. They'll just be like, hum de dum moving on with life. And, you know, uh, I don't know their state, but I imagine that's kind of a freeze response, right? Um, Because you'll see other people flee or, you know, blah, blah, blah. And another uh, reaction is people will appease. People will try to appease because they learned early in life or they surmise that if they appease Harvey Weinstein— Maybe he will uh, remain an ally in their career and not actually assault them so so there's you know there's all those different responses and so when you are abused, you learn how to cope. So say you're sexually assaulted by your grandfather from the age of five to ten. Well, throughout that time, uh, especially if your grandfather is being... Uh, threatening, like if, if you tell anyone I'm going to hurt you or I'm going to hurt your parents or blah, 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 or I'm going to hurt your puppy or something, you're terrified. And so you learn, okay, I better please this person because they have total power over my life and the people I care about. And so this becomes, it Not it, it, over time, it doesn't become a conscious choice. It just becomes a routine, a habit, a neurological pathway that just becomes quite grooved, shall we say. And when you grow up, and you still have that, you know, that habit, that uh, sadistic psychopaths, people interested in finding um, uh, victims who will give in and not talk about it, can sometimes detect those signs just by interacting with you briefly, and so they will, you know, so they'll seek you out. So if you've been abused. Um, Some people will actually seek you out to abuse you because they perceive you as someone who will uh, do who will have a very quick dissociative response and therefore be very easy to abuse. And since you have all the shame and and all the societal horribleness around being quiet about it, you're likely going to keep this one quiet, too, because in all likelihood, you've kept all the other ones quiet. So. Uh, that is a um, another speculation I have. I, when I did the episode on Charles Manson, I, 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 of course, I'll never know this, but it seemed like this is what Charles Manson did because he was a sadistic psychopath, uh, in all likelihood. Can't diagnose him from afar, but he certainly exhibited that sort of thing. And uh, for example, when he uh, met the Beach Boy drummer, he. He kind of did this to the, to the drummer of the Beach Boys. He was one of the Wilson boys. And the Wilson boys and the Beach Boys, the brothers, it's sort of well known that their father was abusive. And so the drummer and the Beach Boys likely gave in to Charles Manson's um, – You know, Charles Manson likely detected that he was someone who would give in to this sort of abuse real quick and not do anything about it. Um, and it's the, it's the other thing that sadistic psychopaths are kind of looking for is like your idea of what is normal behavior is, is somewhat skewed because as a young child, you were shown that it's okay to be abused and abuse is normal. For someone who's never been through that kind of abuse growing up, when they get abused, they might still fight, flight, freeze, or appease. But right afterwards, they're going to be like, oh, my God, what the hell was that? Um, I got to do something about it. And so people, serial abusers will try to find someone who's kind of used to it, essentially. Well, what Charles Manson did is very, it's hard for me to tell, but he seemingly detected that in the drummer of the beach boys. But then when he met, he met some of the other beach boys, particularly one of the non Wilson brothers, the, I can't remember his name, but he's the guy who always wears the beach boys hat. <laughs> um. He Charles Manson tried to get him into his little uh, cult, and this other beach boy was like, oh my God, this guy's a creep, and ran away. And so two beach boys, two different reactions, probably two different childhoods. Um, anyway, so, so that's my second uh, uh, speculation, speculation as to why survivors tend to um, experience several assault events. Number three is that abusers are often... Uh, victims themselves and therefore just feel more com- comfortable around survivors and vice versa. So, you know, it just makes sense, right? If you've if you've been abused yourself, then it's it's common to seek out people who have been through that experience because you feel like they understand you and you can understand them. Well, abusers, um, people who have been abused often will abuse themselves. And so by the sheer nature of being attracted to other – and there's certain uh, cues that people will give off. Like I don't know if they do anymore, but when I was practicing more with teenagers back in the day in the you know late 90s, early aughts, was to look emo, right? To have uh, dark hair and eyeliner and to have – you know your bangs going over your eyes this this was a signal to other kids that you are that you likely have been suffering from abuse now that wasn't an overt signal but it was a signal to other kids your peers that you have emotions that's why they call it emo and that you are sad sometimes and you might even think about suicide sometimes and that is often associated with, you know, surviving abuse. And so, so people will naturally, you know, be attracted to each other. But every once in a while, uh, the abuse survivor is also an abuser. So anyway, that's just another speculation. Another speculation, number four, is that survivors are often victimized by a loved one, which basically intertwines love with abuse in, that, in the survivor's mind, Right. So if your grandfather abused you from age 5 to 10 while also spending a lot of time with you and making you feel like a loved grandchild, then your idea of love is intertwined with being abused. And this kind this can sometimes compel a survivor to seek out an intimate partner who abuses them. So, you know, because they feel like, well, that's what love is is when someone loves you so much that they do that to you or Um, Or just that the style of of the personality is just someone that you're just really familiar with. So that's another speculation. Um, The last speculation I'll say here is that statistically speaking, abuse is very common, uh, tragically. And so uh, for someone to experience two different incidents of abuse is actually statistically likely. Get, particularly for young girls, uh, boys get abused a lot too, a lot more than we realize. But uh, at any rate, uh, abuse is extremely common. Um, something like, I don't know, I can't remember the exact stat, but at least a half of, of uh, women by the time, girls by the time they're 18 have experienced at least one incident of sexual trauma of some kind. And I can't remember the exact stat, but it's, it's very high. And so the chance that uh, uh, someone's going to experience more than one assault is, you know, it's, it's pretty high. It's like saying I've been in more than one car accident in my life. It's like, well, you you wouldn't, you wouldn't be too, you know, or my car has been broken into more than once in my life. Right. It's like, well, there's a lot of people who break into cars. And so, you know, the chance that one person is going to randomly get unlucky and experience two different incidents of this is, you know, it's there. It's just, it's just going to happen statistically. So so those are my speculations. Now, what I'll say to all this is that a lot of these speculations basically imply that uh, we would blame the victim for becoming re-abused. And I just want to put a fine point on it that that is not what I'm saying. Uh, the I'm just providing speculation as to why many—I've I've worked with many clients who will tell me that literally every single romantic partner they've had has, has been sexually abusive to them. So imagine that you, you've, had, you've had 10, 15, 20 boyfriends and, you know, uh, 95% of them are either sexually abusive to them or to their children. And, and you'll see this in families. You'll see, uh, you know, someone who's been sexually abused will in a in a eerie way will somehow marry someone who is sexually abusive to children, uh, of course, unknowingly and of course unconsciously. Why would that happen? Why would these these patterns be so prevalent and so obvious and so stark right if you 've been through abuse, if you 've been assaulted, it seems like you would be the least likely person on the planet to actually uh, hang out with someone or get close to someone who was an abusive person themselves, and, and conversely, you'll find some people have never been abused by anyone in their entire life, and whenever they bump up against an abuser, they sort of get they sort of get creeped out, and they they don't know why they don't like that person, but they sort of back away slowly. Um, or uh, the abusive person isn't really attracted to them because they pick up on something in their personality that tells them, eh, I don't think this person's going to be a good victim. So this isn't blaming the victim at all. It just provides an explanation of something that's that's really quite um, commonly seen as what this patron is, is pointing out. What this really – if you really want to get angry about something and blame something, it's obviously the abusers. They need to stop it. They need to, they need to just stop that because it's immoral and horrible. The other thing we should be mad at is our society for uh, shaming everyone about sex in particular, but, um, but also about being a victim. I mean why – it's just bizarre, bizarre to me that we would create a society where a victim of sexual assault – would feel so worried about coming forward that they don't tell anyone. Look at all of the Harvey Weinstein victims for 30 years. And some of them did come forward, by the way, and were just completely ignored or, you know, a couple of them settled out of court or something. But, you know, we, there are, it's a well-known phenomenon that when you are, when you've been abused... Or when you've experienced any sort of strange experience that you have a compulsion to step forward and say something, we look around to see how other people are treated. And in our society, we have a very long, firm, horrible record of treating victims of sexual abuse and and assault uh, terribly. We either ignore them. We blame them. We re-victimize them. We call them sluts. We uh, say that they're damaged goods. We um, say they must have brought it on. We, you know, what? How do they bring it on themselves? I mean, we have these messages. They're they're not they're not things that people just invent in their minds. Um, you know, as I always say, it's like imagine a, a woman is walking down the street and she's mugged. You know, someone puts a puts a gun in her back and says, "Give me your purse." And she's like, "Okay, here's my purse." Um, do you think she's not going to talk about that? Of course she's going to talk about it. She's going to be like, oh my God, I was mugged. And when she goes to work the next day, she's going to be like, you won't believe this. I was mugged yesterday. But if the same situation, someone walks up behind her and and pulls her into an alley and rapes her, how likely is she going to talk about that at work the next day? Do you think she's going to say like, "Uh, oh my God, last night I was raped. It was horrible. Someone, Someone raped me in an alley. Uh, no. <laughs> and why is that? Because our society is so stupid, and we're so stupid that we can't figure it out. You know, whenever people talk about, you know, if, if aliens came to Earth, and were, they, they'd likely be ex- way smarter than us, right? Because if they've managed to uh, traverse the star systems, they, they're likely extremely intelligent beings. And it's hard to imagine what would it be like to be smarter like you know significantly smarter than humans and it makes total sense right because we are significantly smarter than rats we are significantly smarter than other primates i mean we are just like geniuses compared to other animals i mean other animals know stuff for sure but you know when you actually look at um, cognitive abilities and this kind of stuff. Like five-year-old children are smarter than any other animal on the planet. Um, they can't survive because you know they don't have the instincts or you know that kind of stuff. But you know the ability to do math, the ability to speak, the ability to drive a car, the ability to um, predict things, and and all these kind you know very fundamental things that we just take for granted are are extremely complicated cognitive abilities. And so there's this huge Gap between us and the smartest other animal, let alone other animals. So imagine if this other foreign extraterrestrial animal came here and they were uh, a similar gap in terms of higher intelligence than us. It's always like interesting to think, like, well, what, you know, what would they know, and what would that mean exactly? Well, I know what it would mean. It would mean that they their societies wouldn't be so fucking stupid that they would create an environment that would make a victim of an innocent victim of sexual assault feel so ashamed that they can't come forward and talk about it that's what i would know i would know that those aliens with an iq of 500 would would not create a society like that every time i you know the fact that we're still pumping carbon into the environment while you know the vast majority of scientists and the vast majority of americans understand that this is not good That at the very least, like, it's going to destroy – we've already, I think, destroyed half the species on the planet or something. I mean, like, we depend on this planet. We will be – the entire human race will die if things go bad for us. And we – this, you know, it might happen. Um, There's a lot of hope that technology will sometimes save us from this or, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's just like, well, you know, geez, I hope so. Uh, and, and at what cost along the way. And we're just, we're just idiots. We're stupid. We're just dumb. Uh, the other thing, like a, another small example of this is, you know, you're driving on the freeway, and someone turns on their, you know, someone wants to change lanes, and they just turn on their blinker, and they look in their mirror, and they just, and they just, they don't check their blind spot, and they just, they just change lanes. Now, if this person was 16 and just learning how to drive, maybe, I suppose. But, like, you'll see grown humans just changing lanes on the freeway without checking their blind spot. And it's like, at what point, like, did it occur to you that there there, there might be a car there, you know? And this happens all the time. And I'm sure that these people are, you know, they're not, they're probably not idiots. You know, these are, and I've done it before. I've done. <laughs> I've done that before. And this is one of the dumbest things you could ever do because it's not like, um, you know, it's not a small consequence. If you, if you change lanes and you hit a car on going 65 miles an hour on a freeway and you hit a car, especially with the tail end of your car, you are going to go flying. You're not going to, it's not, you're not going to just bump that car that the bump is going to destabilize your momentum and, you're going to start spinning and maybe even rolling down the street, and this happens every day on American roads. You'll you'll not only obviously put your own life in danger, but if you have kids in the car, other people in the car, other people on the road, this is one of the dumbest things you could ever do as a human being. There are so many stupid things you can do as a human. This is one of the dumbest things, and I've done it. I've I've turned on my blinker and I and I looked in my mirrors, kind of, and I'm like, yeah, I don't think anyone's there, and um, I you know. Uh, change lanes and I hear a hawk and I'm like, Oh my God, there's someone in my blind spot. Um, now I will say that I could probably hopefully count on my, on one hand in my lifetime, how many times that ha- that's happened. But um, anyway, we're stupid. We are, you know, our, our average IQ of hundred uh, is in, you know, it's is shown every day to me. And one of the things that is shown to me is just how dumb we are about sex and how dumb we are about s- sexual abuse survivors. Um, another thing I just know we're so stupid about is that everyone can agree that if ment- every that mental health is important and that uh, tax dollars should be spent on spent on it, and yet every time a budget is passed in this country, uh, it never gets addressed. Mental health is still vastly under um, funded, and um, you know, not only do the politicians do nothing for the most part, but voters do nothing too. Voters are too focused on idiot things that are just like super um, simplistic kinds of political notions, and um, and just completely miss the bigger picture. Um, you know, uh, like anyway, I could <laughs> go on and on. But anyway, my point is is that um, our stupidity is. Uh, shown in some very obvious things that we do as humans, as a group. And I hope that aliens come one day and fix it all because uh, our society does not seem to be fixing this. The me too movement seems to be helping the Harvey Weinstein situation. I think Trump being elected sort of woke everyone up to the reality that wait a second, um, We can't just simply vote for a president to solve our problems. We have to actually do something about this. You know, when when we when we elected Barack Obama, there was all this hope, you know, hope and change, hope and change, and there was definitely something really great about that. And and you know, Obama did some some great things, but great things in our country don't come from the president; it comes from the people, and the president can uh galvanize or you know raise awareness or something but it depends on us and when trump got elected everyone was like what you know especially women are just like wait a second that guy just said literally that it was okay for him to just grab people in the pussy and they won't say anything because he's a star that's what he said i just want to remind everyone that that's what he said he and this is not locker room talk okay (laughs) (laughs) I've, I've, I've been in a lot of locker rooms. I've, I've, I played sports my entire life. Um, I'm, I have, you know, I have a couple toes in the dude bro culture myself and I've never heard a single guy the only person I've ever heard talk about that was, was actually a rapist. Someone who I was like, Oh boy. And all my friends were like, Oh boy, that guy, rapist, (laughs) rapist alert. Um, never heard anyone talk like this. this is not locker room. This is rapist talk that was rapist talk he was talking about because he is powerful like harvey weinstein he can just walk up to women kiss them without their consent grab them in the pussy because without their consent um, without without even knowing them he he was talking about and he, and he even said he even followed up it's like and you know they'll let you do it cuz you know you're a star they'll let you do it cuz you're a star is what he said he was like, "Isn't it interesting that you can just sexually assault people? You can get away with it because you're cause you're a star. They won't do anything. They just they won't fight back." I mean, oh my god! I thought, you know, up until that point, I was like, "Trump's not going to win," and but then as 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 time was going on, I was like, "Well, you know, maybe he's going to win." I, I think you know, it's, it seems like, geez, you know, the polls are looking a little scary. But then when that thing came out, because that was just like a few weeks before the election, I was like, "Oh my god, his." Not only is his presidential race is it, not only is that over because it was basically kind of over before it started, but but his his whole career is over. I mean, that kind of can you believe what he just said? That is one of the grossest, most rapey things that has ever been said by anybody. And then he got elected. <laughs> and you know, I know I have some Republicans who listen, um, and I know I have some you know conservatives who listen. Uh, I hope that. Uh, Even if you did vote for Trump, and even if you did, and even if you do enjoy the Republican agenda, which you know is fine, the Republican agenda does not include raping people. You know, so um, Trump is not when he expressed those things. You know, he wasn't uh, when he does those things. This is not a Republican agenda. It's not a. It's not a political stance that Republicans take. Um, They might exhibit less sympathy for that sort of thing overall, but. Um, but anyway, so uh, and 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 to be honest, it, Harvey Weinstein was a staunch Democrat, by the way. So it's um, and a fighter for the Democratic cause. So the sexual assault knows no uh, political bounds, should we say? But I hope Trump supporters understand that even if you support support his political, the way he votes and his policies, you understand how horrible this was. You understand that. This man, at the very least, in that moment, was expressing something that he should have been politically destroyed for, in my opinion, anyway. And how scary it was for women when he was actually elected. How, you know, people who were actual uh, survival survivors of abuse at the hands of someone like him. How scary it was that he, uh, that that you know, a sizable chunk of Americans actually voted him in. Uh, uh, it was seemingly in approval of this sort of thing. And and so there was a there was. So what happens? Well, the American people are like, OK, I guess presidential elections are just one part of the problem here or just one or just one solution to the problem. Um There are other solutions like maybe we just have to do this ourselves and, and let's forget about the president. And I think that's a good idea. I think we all need to stop focusing on the president so much. The president is one public servant who uh, is someone we should be paying attention to. But there are many public servants uh, that are affecting our policies. And also, uh, policies are often driven by the constituents, by the people. And so when the people rise up and say, you know, Republicans and Democrats rise up and say, no, you cannot grab us in the pussy just because you're famous, just because you're a star. You cannot just walk up to us and kiss us. And I say us because it's not just women, right? Uh, Terry Crews, a, a very uh, macho seeming African American man, stepped forward as well. This is all of us. This is a problem for all of us, particularly for women, but uh, it's a problem for everybody. Umbertos, Umberto's talked about him uh, being assaulted when he was younger. This is this is something that affects everyone, and everyone who has survived, uh, you know, was affected by this, and. That's, in my opinion, and to a lot of people's opinion, that's why the Harvey Weinstein thing finally took hold. Because it's not like people hadn't been speaking about it before. There were many jokes about it. You know the uh, Seth MacFarlane joke at the Golden Globes about, well, now all you women, you no longer have to act like you're attracted to Harvey Weinstein. You know, it was it was well known. Lots of people had complained about it. Why did it? Why did it finally take root? Well, because of uh, I think a reaction to Trump, and and I think a reaction to like, look, we, we gotta take, we gotta if if something's got to happen, we gotta do it ourselves. We gotta and, and really, that's the I love that attitude. <laughs> the Me Too movement, all those brave women who like said, and and all those journalists, and and every and then the people who paid attention to it, because you know that's the other thing is the media has reported on this before. Uh, everyone participated in the success of of um, outing Harvey Weinstein and, and several others, you know the media, the the survivors who, who stepped forward, all of us who read those uh, reports and didn't ignore it and and kept the story going and you know we clicked on those those uh, news stories on the internet. Um, we, we posted things on Facebook, it, it, all of that matters, you know, people say like, Oh, Facebook and hashtag it all means shit, it it is it not mean shit, it means something. Um, you know, ad revenues drive what ends up being reported. And when you click on something, it is a small vote for that particular story. And uh, so you can, you know, participate in that. And, and, and so along those lines, you know, think about the sort of things you click on. And think about the sort of things that uh, grab your attention. And think about the things you you ignore on the internet. Um, anyway. Wow, that was a long soapbox rant. Uh, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me. If you would like to email me questions, you can email me at contact at psychologyinseattle.com. That's contact at psychologyinseattle.com. We appreciate short questions um, because... I have, I have a long list of deep dives that I have to get to. So you can help me out by just emailing me short questions until I get rid of all those other deep dives I want to get to. Anyway, take care of yourself because you deserve it. You, you really, you really, really do. You, you deserve a break when you need one and you deserve support and you deserve to ask for help and you deserve to get help. And we all deserve to mutually help each other out. Um, so do that. Because we deserve it.